All right, ladies, welcome. Beruchim Abba'im. It's Parashat Naso, which is uh, the Parashat that comes after Shavuot. Noted to be the longest Parashat in the Torah, 176 Pesukim, and for good reason. After we receive the Torah, we want to show God that we love the Torah so much that we want the biggest portion right away. You know, if there would be a small portion after Shavuot, that would say as if, you know, we're not too happy with what you gave us, so give us a small. But when you like the dinner, you ask for a, a big portion. So when we got the Torah, we said to God, Ki'ilu, give us the biggest parashah. And uh, that is indeed parashat Naso. Now, the lion's share of the parashah is actually the pesukim that are written in Perek Zion, chapter 7, uh, I counted them before I came, 89 Pesukim in one chapter. That is the longest chapter in the entire Torah. And the rest of the Pesukim talk about an array of topics. I'd like to go through very quickly just the topics that are mentioned in the Perashah for your information, F- FYI as they say. Now, uh, in the beginning of the Perashah, it talks about um, the family of Gereshon. Now, who is Gereshon and why are we talking about his family? Parashat uh, Bamidbar, which is the first parashat in the book called Bamidbar. Bamidbar is explained as the book of numbers. Don't ask me how the word Bamidbar came to be numbers, uh, but that's what it is. Because most of the perashah of Bamidbar is just numbers, a census. We're counting everything, every family, and we're giving totals. And we started to count in last week's perashah the tribe of Levi. They have a different census. You know, everybody else you count from 20 to 60. The Levim you count from 30 to 50. Some reasons for that. And uh, we counted the families last week of Kehat. Kehat is the second son of Levi. Uh, the reason why we counted him first, why did we skip over Gereshon, is because he has a very prestigious job. He carries the Aron. So because of his job and Kavodah Torah, so therefore he is discussed first in Parashat Kehat and Parashat Bamidbar. And then the Parashat ends. In this week's Parashat, we begin counting the family of Gereshon. Now, I just asked a simple question. Why couldn't you just count all the children of Levi, Gereshon, Kehat, and Merari, in last week's parashah? Why did we uh, split it up? As if parashat Naso begins with, this is, or parashat Bamidbar ends with to be continued. We're in the middle of counting the tribe of Levi. We counted one family, Kehat. So finish the job. Count uh, Gereshon and count Merari. No, our parashah begins by Count them also. Well, we could have counted them last week. And by the way, even if you skip these pesukim, it still would be the longest parashah. So why did we have it over here? So I saw interesting Abarbanel. The Abarbanel writes, is because, listen, Gereshon should be counted first. He's the Bechor. But we didn't count him first. Because we wanted to count Kehat first because of the prestigious job that he had of counting the Aron. 
So says a barbanel, but you gotta give the bechor the respect. Well, how can we give him the respect if we're putting him second? Well, he'll be the first opening act in Parashat Naso. And therefore, we figured out a way to give both respect. We'll count Kehat first at the end of Bamidbar, but we'll put Gereshon in his own parashah, and therefore to give the respect for the Bechor. So that's why we start the parashah with the counting of the Gereshon family. Right, very nice. Following that, so now they're all accounted for, and then the Torah gives us a law that says that anybody that has contamination, contamination, for example, somebody has leprosy, somebody has an emission that's coming out of his body, somebody that has corpse tum'ah, that's called sarua, zav, v'chol tamela nefesh. What do we do with these contaminants? So we have to send them outside the camp. Torah says they have to go outside the camp, they cannot be uh, in the... Uh, you know, in the camp proper. Now, again, ladies, because I'm trying to give you the whole parashah quickly, you do need some information. In Bamidbar, we also learned about the formation that was created, how the Jews travel in the Midbar. It's called the flag formation. They traveled in a square, three tribes on each side with flags, and the Mishkan in the middle. That was established in last week's parashah. Don't make a mistake, they didn't travel in single file like the uh, parades that you see in the city, the ticket tape parades, Israeli day parade. They didn't do anything like that. There was no floats and there was no uh, banners. The way they traveled was in a very holy design. This design was established at the funeral of Yaakov Abinu, that's where Yaakov told them before he died, when you take my body from Egypt to the Ma'arat HaMachpilah, Reuven, you stand over here, Shimon, you stand over there. And based on that formation, which is actually a formation of the angels in heaven. So we're actually modeling something very, very, uh, very holy. And the Shekhinah likes that formation. And the Shekhinah rests in that formation. So once we created a camp, so now we have the Mishkan. And then we have a perimeter away from the Mishkan. And then we have a perimeter where the Jewish people are, the final perimeter. So there's three levels. It's called Mahane Shekhinah, which is the Mishkan proper. Outside the Mishkan is called Mahane Leviyah. And then outside of that is called Mahane Yisrael. Anyway, not to confuse. If somebody is ritually impure, they must be sent out of the camp. Sometimes you're sent out of Shekhinah camp, sometimes you're sent out of Leviyah camp. And if the worst case, you're sent out of the the whole camp. Now that was a new law because there was no such thing as sending anybody out of the camp until we had a camp. So first we had to set the law of the parameters and then once we have the parameters, the Torah tells us, okay, if somebody's tamir, they got to go out. Okay, now you learned that. Now you want to know the next thing in the parashah? The next thing is, now I, I know we don't usually do this. Usually we just pick the topic and we, 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 we analyze. But here I want to give you the whole parashah because there's a purpose. I have a purpose. The next item is, Daber b'nei Yisrael, speak to the people, ish or isha, man or a lady, ki yasu mikol hatota adam, if they commit a sin. What's the sin we're talking about over here? Gezel. They steal. If God forbid somebody steals money from his friend, doesn't matter, man or lady. And then not only did they steal, but they swore falsely that they didn't steal. That's a double sin. Torah says when they 
There's a mitzvah for them to confess and come clean. Here's where we learn the law of vidui. You know, on Kippur we make confession. It's learned from this parasha over here where it says, uh, They will make confession. Uh, they have to return what they stole. And you have to add a fifth. That means not only do you pay back the principal, but you have to add 20%. That's again, somebody that stole and then swore falsely, there's a confession, and then there's a reparation. Torah tells us if, let's say, the person he stole from died, so then you give it to the closest of relatives. There's laws of inheritance. Who comes next? Let's say the Torah says there is no relatives. Now how could that be? How could somebody not have relatives unless he's a Martian how can he not have relatives? There's always somebody he's related to. Great, great, great uncle, second cousin, 16th cousin, once removed. How is it possible that he has no relatives? He's got to be related to somebody. He wasn't born in a, in, a, in a bubble. So that she says, it's talking about a convert. When a person converts to Judaism, he basically at that point is related to one person. Himself. He has no mother, he has no father, he has no grandfather, he has no nothing. Now let's say somebody stole from a convert, and then the convert subsequently died, now who are you going to pay back? So the Torah says that that money goes to the Kohen. If there's no relatives to return the theft, uh, then already... The money goes to the Kohen. So that's another benefit of being a Kohen. It's one of the 24 perks that you get by being a Kohen, uh, that monies that have no claims, you know, there's no family to claim it, the Kohen becomes the uh, automatic claimant of those unclaimed funds. Then the Torah says, Torah says that the Kohen also gets Bikurim. What is Bikurim? The first fruits. It's another one of the 24. So again, it's good to be a Kohen. It's, no, actually, it's good to be a Kohen. And then the Torah says, Torah then says, uh, This is referring to over here, uh, the simple explanation that a person has a choice to give his Terumah and his tithes to who he wants, the Kohen is not allowed to take it against the will. The choice to give it to the Kohen of you know, your desire is up to you. Okay, that's that. Now we go to the next item. Now the next item over here is, oh, now we get to the serious stuff. It's not the topic, but we have to discuss it. Amen. The law of Sota. So basically that's the lady that a husband has suspicions, uh, valid suspicions. She was warned already not to be secluded. She didn't listen. Witnesses came and said she was secluded. We don't know what happened behind closed doors. She must go to the Beit HaMikdash to Kohen, concocts a uh, holy potion that has some water in it, some dirt in it, some pesukim in it, and she drinks the potion. And if she's innocent, the potion actually will be a fertility blessing to her. She'll have children, she'll be healthy. If she's not innocent, so then there's a, uh, you know, we know what happens. She explodes, 
and uh, she doesn't come out. I mean, they have to, you know, they mop her up basically, and that's that's the end of the sota. So the sota is mentioned in the perasha. After the sota is mentioned, the next topic is the law of nazir. Okay, now let's discuss that law. The better bnei Israel, ish or isha. It could be a nazir or a nazira. It could be a lady nazira. You know, it's not only a man's item. They express themselves that they want to be a, ne- a nazir. Now, what happens if they become a nazir? So that comes and says, no wine, no grapes. Uh, they're not allowed to uh, shave their hair. And they are not allowed also to become ritually impure, even to their closest relatives. Okay, that's the law of nazir. And then when the nazirut is over, 30 days, it brings a korban and everybody lives happily ever after. After that, there's another parasha. That's the law of Birkat Kohanim. The bear of the Aharon, Banav, the more speak to Aaron and his children. Speak to Bnei Yisrael. That is all in chapter 6. All these topics that we just mentioned. And then we get to chapter 7, which talks about the 89 Pesukim of the inauguration sacrifices that were brought when the Mishkan was inaugurated on Rosh Chodesh Nisan. Every day another president brought a sacrifice, and each sacrifice is listed, and there's 12 of them. So therefore... You know, do the math. It comes out to 89 Pesukim. So again, a lot of repetition and then a lot of review. And then the Perasha finally, not that we're happy, but the, fine, the Perasha finally ends. 176 Pesukim. Now, before I get into what I came to talk about today, I said to myself, there has to be a logic why the Torah writes these things in this order. Why does this come before this, and this come after this, and this come after this? I don't believe that this is just God and variety. Where the Torah had a lot of stuff to talk about, so you know what? Parashat so just throw it all in there over there, and uh, you know, what's the difference? No, there has to be a rational reason in the connection between A to B to C to D. So I was searching if anybody can give me a, a thread that I can weave and make a story from one topic to the other. I found it. I found it. Who is it? It's a rabbi called the Nefesh David. Who is the Nefesh David? Nefesh David is a rabbi that's called Rabbi David Tabil. He was one of the rabbis in, I think, Minsk one of the great Lithuanian rabbis. He wrote books on the Talmud as well. So listen to what he says. He writes, Yesh lomar, ta'am semichut parashat shiluach temeim. Why are you all of a sudden discussing sending out the people who are contaminated? Lomar, keshem shelo hayta kin'ah ben hadegalim. When they received their positions, in last week's parasha, where everybody's going to stand, nobody got jealous. Nobody said, hey, how come the Nevi'im are inside and we're on the outside and we got the sun and you got the shade 
and we're on the right, and you're on the Nobody complained. Everybody accepted in harmony and peace their position. So just like they accepted that, Be'ahava, Odzot. Until this point, until there was a camp, the people that were contaminated never got embarrassed or shamed because there was nowhere for them to leave. Now all of a sudden, once we establish a camp and now God says, oh, now we got to keep the camp holy. And therefore, if you're not worthy, you have to, you have to move out. Now you might have thought that they would have contested and the people would have said, no, that's not fair. That says, no, just like they accepted the positions willfully and happily, they accepted the laws of Tum'ah willfully and happily, and nobody had any claims. It seems that they were all equally committed to keep the camp holy. And therefore, when God told them that if you're at Sarua, if you're at Zav, if you're at Tamir, you're going to have to leave, they had no problem. Now that they have camps, now we know exactly who's pure and who's not. Now their shame is being exposed. They accepted it b'ratzon. Now he goes on to say, and after that, if a man, God forbid, steals from his friend, lady to a lady, or a man to a lady, or vice versa. So he says, the whole purpose of this formation was to bring the Shekhinah amongst the people. Because that formation is a formation of heaven. That's the way the angels surround the Kisei kavod. But for that to work, it has to be where the people are going to be united and they have to have camaraderie and they have to have peace amongst themselves. The problem is, what's going to happen if there's division amongst the people? Example, somebody steals from his friend. Now you got a problem. Because if somebody steals from his friend, now you have divisiveness, and now the Shekhinah is going to leave the, the camp. So the Torah says, The camp only has the Shekhinah if there's going to be a deep love between the people. If a person is going to sin on monetary items, you have to appease. It's not enough to pay back what you stole. If you pay back what you stole, you didn't appease nothing. You got caught. But if I come along and say, I know I stole 100, and I feel terrible, and I'm paying you back 125, now the guy says, okay. Now already, isn't it? So the Torah is going out of its way to say, for this structure of the Galim to work, even if you're going to commit, commit crimes against each other, it's going to be, have to be fixed through a concept of appeasement. And in this case, it's monetary appeasement. You have to tell your friend, It's true I sinned. I'm giving you matana. In the middle of the year. Very good. Now he goes on to say, Now this is a big subject that the Rav begins. So everything is about peace. We don't want anybody to fight with each other. We want the Shekinah to rest amongst the people. And therefore, the Torah is going out of its way to come along and make sure that the Degalim, the formation is right. Timi'im, got to get out. Shekinah cannot rest with this Timi'im. Where there's strife and there's jealousy, it's not going to work. So if you stole, pay back a little more. Make sure you fix it. Now we got a big problem, but 
Problem is the Kohanim. How are we going to live with these Kohanim? They have so many advantages. The Kohanim, you, you cannot deny it, they are preferred. They have access to where nobody has access in the Mishkan. They get all these gifts, we got to give them all these taxes, 2%, 10%, they're collecting all these matanot that we talked about. So how in the world are we going to create a unified nation when you took a large majority, a large portion of it, a whole tribe, and you said, they're VIPs. And there, all the, all the amenities go to the Kohanim, and everybody else is regular folk. It's not going to work. So now we have to figure out a way that the people will not have any envy or jealousy against the Kohanim. Now you never thought about that because today, Kohanim, they don't have so much advantage. But you'd be surprised. You know, if you come to the shul on Shabbat, they always get the first aliyah. You'll never give it to a Levi, and you're definitely never giving it to a Yisrael. So they, 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 got, they got some some perks. Not only that, but if you're sitting with some men having you know, bread, and it comes to make zimun, Kohen goes first. And even if you have uh, some nice Yisraelim over there with good resumes, doesn't matter. The Kohen is going to go first. When we're walking into a doorway, if there's a Kohen there, excuse me, let the Kohen go first. The Kiddush door, he goes first. With, if you have food on the table, the best piece of meat, you got to give to the Kohen, even till today. So, there is room to have claims against these guys. You might look down at them and say, well, these guys are getting everything for me. Who are they? Are they more Jewish than us? But the Torah seems to say that, yeah, they're special. So to, 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 get, to, to uh, cause uh, 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 this, uh, uh, to fix this problem, the Torah doesn't follow. Torah says to the Jewish people, we know that Kohanim get Tirumah, but you know what? You could be in Yisrael, and you could also eat Tirumah. How could that be? Israel cannot eat Tirumah. Yes. Because if a Bat Yisrael, a daughter of a Yisrael, my daughter, I'm Yisrael, doesn't matter Rabbi Mansour, doesn't matter everything, I cannot eat Tirumah. If I Tirumah, I'm guilty. But take some Ama'ares Kohen, who doesn't even know the Aleph bit, but because he was born in the Kohanim family, he can eat Tirumah. But if my daughter marries a Kohen, now my daughter can eat Tirumah. And now my grandchildren can eat Tirumah. So says the Nefesh David, why did God make that law? In order to take away the envy. To give even non-Kohanim a chance to be part of the action. So therefore, we're saying, listen, you can join the club. You want to have Tirumah? Let your, let your daughter marry a Kohen. When you call the Shadchan, say, we only want Kohanim. Okay, very good. Does it matter? No, it doesn't matter. It says one, one, one item. It has to be a Kohen. And then all of a sudden, you have all your grandchildren will be Kohanim, even though you're a Yisrael, and they'll get to eat it, Tirumah. So he writes, Hagam ma'alata Kohanim alehim, even though God lifted the Kohanim, Halo yuchlu Yisrael hatan. A lot of Jews can marry in. Benotam, their daughters, at least, like Kohanim. Ve'az yukola yudbet shivatim kerovim la Kohanim. That means all the 12 tribes can have in them Kohanim. Because the daughters of any tribe who marry into the Kehunah, 
now have a status of kehuna. So therefore, Kohanim will not be now a single tribe. The Kohanim are actually able to have their uh, 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 benefits enjoyed throughout Klai Yisrael. Ve'az, asher yiten la-kohen matanot kehuna. So the Pasuk says, when you're going to give the gifts to the Kohanim, lo yihiyu. I'm reading the Pasuk the way he learns it. The ishet kadashab lo yihiyu. That a person who's a Yisrael can benefit from the Kodashim. Lo yihiyu. It's going to be to you. How can it be to you? By marrying your daughters into Kehuna, when they're going to give out the Kedushah, lo yihiyu, you'll have a piece of it as well. Kola matarot Kehuna yihiyu lenechadav, leseesaav. So therefore, ish ashir yitin bitola kohen. You'll have all the benefits. Beautiful. So what does that do? That causes peace between us and the Kohanim. But we want to do something else. A man obviously wants his wife to be faithful. That goes without saying. Now, who is the uh, enforcer in the Jewish nation to make sure that Jewish women are faithful? It's the Kohen. Because if the husband has a question, who's he gonna go to? The Kohen. And he's the one that's gonna give the waters that's gonna cause the unfaithful wife to blow up. And therefore, it's the Kohen that's holding the holy potion that actually keeps Benot Yisrael in check. And therefore, every husband, no matter what tribe he came from, is happy that there's Kohanim, because it's the Kohanim that are guaranteeing the, the loyalty and the fidelity of the marriages. That's why Sota is written in the parasha. Also to keep the, the unity, the people will have respect for the enforcers or the Kohanim, because it benefits them. V'samach parashat Sota lomar, Hello, od zot hashav Hashem yitbarach. Hashem had another idea, sheyehavu kol Yisrael Kohanim. Unbelievable. God wants us to love the Kohanim because he knows it's natural not to love them. So we make some law. What does he say? There'll be fear on the woman because of the Kohanim. Not to commit immorality. And, then, and not only that, the husbands will love it because the potion that the Kohen has, if she's innocent, she becomes healthy. She has boys. She has healthy children. So therefore... For the, for the men, the Kohanim with this potion called Sota waters is actually a beracha. What's after Sota? Nazir. Nazir. Now what's the connection between Nazir? So he says, you know what? You ever hear of uh, king, king, king for a day? There's a concept, you be king for a day. A few months ago, the president of my Maimonides Hospital called me up. I said, Rabbi Manson, you can be a nurse for a day. I said, okay, I was, I always wanted to be a nurse, I guess. And I went to the hospital. And I, they gave me a robe, they gave me a, a, a stethoscope. And I went around, I went to, to, to all the operating rooms in, the, in the, one of the floors. There were 13 operating rooms. And I had access to wherever I wanted. I was considered a nurse for a day. They didn't they ask me for my credentials or anything over there. And then they gave me a diploma. But the point is, how about a Kohen for a day? Now that would be great, you know. Imagine you could tell Israel, you too can enjoy what it feels to be like a Kohen. So what is it over here? The Torah comes along and says, lo parashat nazir. What's parashat nazir? Zot mefayes Hashem 
gives a, a consolation and a peace with the Yisraelim. Halo yuchal kol ish mi Yisrael vekol isha, every man and woman, lavol lemaalat kehuna. You can become like a Kohen, but not just like any Kohen. Because if you're doing it, you might as well do it right. You could be like a Kohen Gadol. Let me explain. If you have a regular Kohen, is a Kohen allowed to contaminate the corpses? Answer like a rabbi. It depends. Don't say no. If you say no, that's it. You can be 50-50 wrong. But if you say depends, you're definitely right. A rabbinical answer. If I taught you anything over these years, never answer a question yes or no. Always answer depends, you'll never be wrong. Because it always depends on something. So I go back to the question again. Can a regular Kohen contaminate? It depends. Depends who? He cannot contaminate to strangers. But he is allowed to contaminate himself to the seven close relatives. His wife, his father, his mother, his son, his daughter, his brother, his sister, who's not married. So therefore, a Kohen had yours, a regular Kohen, even today. But if God forbid there's a Kohen that loses his parent, the law says he can go into the, into the funeral. Even though if it was a stranger, he would not be able to go into the building. Why? There's dispensation. However, what's the law if you're a Kohen Gadol? Exactly, you can't. To say it in plain English, you can't. If you're a Kohen Gadol, he cannot even contaminate himself to his parents. That's it, that's it. You don't want to be a Kohen Gadol, you have to live on a very high standard. The Kohen Gadol always has to be prepared and he cannot have any Tum'ah because of his lofty... Now who's going to bury the parents? The Havra Kadisha. He is not allowed to be involved. There's only one type of corpse that the Kohen Gadol is allowed to... Met mitzvah. Met mitzvah is if there's a corpse and there's nobody to bury it, and he's the only one in the vicinity, then already the Kohen Gadol is able to. But outside of Met mitzvah, the Kohen Gadol can be metameh to nobody. Is there anybody else besides a Kohen Gadol that is not allowed to contaminate to anybody, even the close relatives? You're unbelievable. You're unbelievable. That's exactly the answer. The Nazir. Now the Nazir does not have to be a Kohen Gadol. He can be a regular Israel. You take a guy from the tribe of Naphtali and the guy says, I want to be a Nazir. And you know what they tell him? Guess what? You're a Kohen Gadol for the day. Now you're going to feel what it means to be upgraded like a Kohen Gadol. You're not allowed to become contaminated. Now you share something with the holiest man. Now what does that do for Jewish people? I'm connected. Now I can also be uh, uh, one of those. So it, it breaks the envy. As long as God is giving us even somewhat access to Kahuna. Listen, we can't turn you into a Kohen, but we can give you access through your children. We can benefit the Kohanim that they'll give you Shalom Bayit in your family. We can give you access in the sense that you will behave like a Kohen, albeit for 30 days or however many long you want to be a Nazir. So therefore he says, oh, he says even better. <laughs> when does a Kohen Gadol become a Kohen Gadol to serve? He cannot serve until he's 20. But a Nazir can become a Nazir even younger. So therefore in a certain sense, 
you could become like a Kohen Gadol even younger than the age that a, so you understand the, 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 what's going on in this, the perashah according to this rabbi this perashah basically is the perashah to keep peace and unity amongst the nation so the Shekhinah is going to rest so the Torah says first of all you gotta have a camp now once you have a camp you gotta kick out a lot of people if they're not pure that's gonna cause a problem the Torah says just like when they established the camp, nobody had any claims where they were. When God announced that the Tami'im are going to have to leave, nobody had any claims as well. And then the Torah came along and said, after that, if you take money from somebody, you have to appease them. You have to give them back principal plus 20%, because we don't want anybody to have any claims, and therefore you have to make good. It's not enough just to return back the principal. And then the Torah says, and don't have any claims against the Kwanim. Go take your kids and go marry them into the Kwanim families. And you, your children will eat just as much as Kwanim will eat, and your grandchildren will have the status of Kwanim. And the Kwanim are going to be, help your Shalom buy it. And if you want to be a Kohen Gadol, you can even do that by becoming a Nazir. And then, how could you have any claims against the Kohanim? They bless you every single day. And that's why the Torah then writes the law of Birkat Kohanim. Could you hate somebody that gets up? And says to you, that blesses you with money, with boys, with girls, with beracha. And then when the Torah puts Birkat Kohanim as the finality of the chapter, in order to say, and why should you have any animosity towards these people? I'm going to tell them that they have an obligation to bless the people. And therefore that blessing is actually going to come from me through them. Like it says, the they will place their hands on the people, but God said, I am the one that is ultimately blessing. Now, in now, I, I again pause here for a minute. This is brilliant what you just heard. This is a rabbi over here that figured out that there is a, a, a reason and a rhyme for all the connecting penashiyot one after the other. Uh, this is a such a beautiful understanding. Now you have, you have a concept, which is the purpose of Perashat Nassau is to keep the community at peace. To keep them united. Now that we have the camp, now that we're all together, now that we receive the Torah, now we have to make sure that there's peace amongst the people. Now we have a problem. We have a problem. Because there's some, some old stuff that was still haunting us. The old stuff that was haunting us was the fact that the brothers sold Yosef. Uh, so, you know, uh, we, got, we have to appease the tribe of Yosef. And also, as you know, uh, the brothers, the children of Le'ah, were mistreating the children of the Shifahot. And that's why Yosef got involved. He felt that it wasn't right for the children of Le'ah to mistreat the children of Bilha and Zilpah. And therefore Yosef came to protect them. So that has to be fixed as well. So says the Nefesh, that means something incredible. The youngest two tribes in B'nai Yisrael were who? Yosef and Benjamin. And they needed appeasement. Well, Yosef needed appeasement, not so much Benjamin. Benjamin wasn't even around at the time of the sale. But those were the two youngest. 
So in order to make sure that nobody takes advantage of the youngest and nobody has any uh, misgivings about the youngest, says the Rab, in Birkat Kohanim, how many words are in the first Pasuk? I'll read it to you. Yebarechecha Adonai V'yishmerecha. Very good. No tricks. Three. See that? You don't have to say it depends. There's three. We counted. Yebarecha Hashem Yishmerecha. But it really does depend. Because the Rav says, don't count Hashem's name in the Pasuk. Because that's not the blessing. The blessing is Yebarechecha and Yishmerecha. That's two. The two in the first Pasuk, with the blessing of Hashem's name, represent Yosef and Binyamin. They go first. And then we go to the second Pasuk. The second Pasuk is Ya'ev, Hashem, Panav, Elecha, Vichoneka. Five words. Take away Hashem's name, and you have four. That's the children of the Shefachot. Dan, Naftali, Gad, Asher. They come second. Take the third Pasuk. Yisa, Hashem, Panav, Elecha, V'yasem Lecha Shalom. That's seven. Take away Hashem's name. That's the six children of Leah. They come last. And therefore, that's an appeasement to the children of the Shefahot as well as Yosef and Binyamin. So that's embedded also in Birkat Kuanim that every day when they're blessing, Yosef cannot have any claim. We put you first. We put you first. The blessing is to you first. And then the Shifahot, we put you before us. And therefore, in the style of the 357, or actually according to the rabbi, it's 246, that already is an appeasement to the entire nation. Now, that is, that is something beautiful as well. All right, that's the introduction. That's a good introduction. Now, if I end it here, you learned something. You learned an unbelievable flow of Parashat Nasur. But we left one thing out. We didn't tell you the connection between the lion's share of the parasha, the 89 Pesukim, that talk about the inaugural Korban of the, uh, of, of the presidents at the time that the Mishkan was inaugurated. That's in this parasha as well. Now there's another time that we read this parasha, you know. The inaugural sacrifices. Anybody know when we read it? No, not Sukkot, but Hanukkah. Very good. We read it on Hanukkah. Because Hanukkah also means inauguration. I recently saw that if you take the numerical value of the word Hanukkah, Hanukkah equals 89 which is exactly the amount of pesukim that are in the inaugural perek. Uh, perek Zion is 89 pesukim, gematria Hanukkah. So there's a name is that this parasha one day will be read on the holiday of Hanukkah. Even though at the time it was written, there was no Hanukkah. Hanukkah is a rabbinical holiday. The Torah is already giving a name is to what's going to happen in the future. The question we ask is obvious. Why now are we talking about the inaugural sacrifice? When did this inaugural sacrifice take place? Let me give you the history. The Mishkan was built after we received the second tablets on Yom Kippur. If you want, I can even take you back before that. 
came out of Egypt. When we go from the beginning, Adam and Eve, or then we go from we go from we go from from Egypt. We came out of Egypt. Three months later, we got the Torah Shavuot. We just had that. After Shavuot, forty days later, we were supposed to get the full Torah. On the seventeenth of Tammuz, we blew it. The tablets were broken. Forty days of prayers. Forty days of prayers. Moshe comes down with the second tablets on Kippur. Now we got the tablets. Now we got the Torah. At that point, God says, "Build the Mishkan." We build the Mishkan. The Mishkan is finished in Kislev time. God says, "I'm not ready for the inauguration yet. I want it to be constructed on the 23rd of Adar." For seven days, Moshe Rabbeinu built the Mishkan. Constructed it, took it apart, and he served as the first Kohen. On the eighth day of this process, which is Rosh Chodesh Nisan, now God said, Moshe, congratulations, you're fired. Your son, your brother Aharon is going to be the first official Kohen Gadol. And on that day, the presidents on their own said, we want to bring inaugural sacrifices to show our gratitude to Hashem for this beautiful structure and then God said you know what instead of all of you bringing it on the same day every day another tribe will bring the sacrifice and the Torah tells us on the first day Yehuda and he brought everything and the next day Yisachar and the next day Zibudun and it's just a repeat over and over and over of all these sacrifices that were that were brought. So now you know the context of when this was done. This is in Nisan, the second year from when we came out of Egypt. We came out of Egypt a year before that in Nisan. This is a year later, after we got the Torah, after we built the Mishkan, now, the question that is obvious, what was it doing here? By the way, we built the Mishkan a long time ago in the Bible. Mishkan, Perashiyon, are in the end of Shemot. Or in Vayikra, we got the Parashat Shemini. Vayhi, Vayoma Shemini. It was on the eighth day. That's the inauguration day. So put all the inauguration sacrifices over there. I mean, my question really is, what are these 89 Pesukim of inauguration doing here in Parashat Nasu? That's the question I came to ask today. Fair question? Okay. Now, Problem is, the Nefesh David doesn't discuss it. So now I'm on my own. Till now, I'm reading Nefesh David. Bing, 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 bing. And I'm saying, okay, he's going to give me the main item. The main item is the 89 Pesukim. He goes rogue. He doesn't say anything. Didn't the people have to make themselves into vehicles to accept it? Maybe that was a delay. But this was done already. This, was, this is old news already. This story of here bringing the inaugural sacrifice happened already early on. Now, the Torah decides this week, you know, just to make the parasha the longest parasha, we're going to put it over here. What, what, what's the intent? So, in order to understand it, you need to read a rashi in this parasha, one of the most amazing rashis you'll ever see. I'm in chapter 7. First pasuk. Ladies, listen to pasuk. Vayhi... Beyom 
כלות משה להקים את המשכן. And it was on the day that משה, כלות, I guess כלות is what? Finished. When he finished erecting the משכן, this is Rosh Chodesh Nisan, ויימשך אותו, he consecrated it, ויקדש אותו, and he made it holy, and on that day, ויקריבו נשיאי ישראל, the president started to come in line, ויביאו את קורבנם, they brought their sacrifices, and God said to Moshe, accept their sacrifices, ויהיה מקריב ביום הראשון, נחשון בן עמין אדם למטה יהודה, קורבנו קראת כסף, very nice, and then it says, ביום השני, נתנאל בן סואר נשיא יששכר, ביום השלישי נשיא זבולון, אליאב בן חילון, אצטרה אצטרה. says רשי, on the word ויהי ביום קלות, so he says like this, קלות, היו ישראל כקלה הנכנסת לחופה. אוהווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווווו
How many times in Shira Shirim does it mention the Jewish people as the bride of HaKadosh Baruch Hu? Six. And therefore, says the Rav, oh, that since we see Shilomor refers to us six times, so you see the word, the letter Vav represents what? So therefore, it's Kalat Vav. It's the six times that, so therefore, that even the Vav can in, in mean or have a reference to the Kala. Now, I even saw even further that there's four other times in Tanakh where the Tanakh refers to us as God's bride. So altogether, that's six in Shira Shirim and four everywhere else. That's altogether we're called God's bride ten times. And that's where they got the halakha that says that you're not allowed to have a wedding unless you have ten men. Because since God called us the kalat ten times, from there we learned that to make the beracha at a wedding, you need to have ten men. Sometimes you have these, you know, couples, older couples, or whatever, the, the rabbi, we want to make a small wedding, it's a second marriage or third marriage, whatever it be. we want to get married in your office. As a, first of all, you can't fit in my office, I can barely fit in my office, but we can do it in the shul, because nobody's coming, just me and my bride and the rabbi. I said, it doesn't work that way over here. This is not Las Vegas, we have to make a wedding over here in a proper way. We have to have ten men, we have to have a chuppah, we have to have witnesses. No, 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 I'm not. I said, listen, you, you, you can't get me. Don't use me. If you, if you want to tell me how to make a wedding ceremony, then do, then do it yourself. You have to have 10 men. Okay, you sure? Yeah, I'll double check, but I think I'm sure. And, and Hakamim tell us, Hakamim tell us that we got it from the fact that there's 10 brides. And that explains something else. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. You remember when Eliezer was going to find the bride for... Rivka, so it says, and he went. And the Torah goes out of its way and says that what did he travel with? And he traveled with 10 camels. Dear ladies, well, what do I have to do that he traveled with 10 camels for? Well, wait, if he traveled with 10 camels, that means there had to be 10 riders that were on the camels. Because Yitzhak already said, if this is going to be the right girl, we already have to have the 10 men that are ready to make the, the berachot properly. So therefore the ten camels represent, not the camels, the men that were on the camels that already the Izzet brought with him in order to make the, the marriage legitimate. So the vav then in, that, in this pasuk can be, can be explained as the vav of marriage because that vav represents the six times that King Solomon mentioned kala. That's one explanation. But I saw a beautiful... I guess it's a, uh, a theory from a rabbi called the Hatam Sofer. Listen to beautiful. On the final day that Moshe Rabbeinu served, so it says on that day, he tried to lift the Mishkan, because he built it, he, he built it, he took it apart and built it. On that day, the Pasuk says he couldn't do it. It was too heavy for him. He had a desire to do it, but he couldn't lift the poles. They were too heavy. And it says Hashem made a miracle, and the poles started to come up by themselves. On the last day, God erected the Mishkan. So what does it mean over here? It says, It sounds like Moshe was making the Mishkan. It says the Hatam Sofer, the word kalot means to anticipate or to desire. Pasuk Tehilim, Nechsefa, Vegam Kaletan Nafshi. I have great 
yearnings to you, God. Kaleta nafshi. I have great anticipation. I have great attraction. Kaleta. So on that day, it was kalot Moshe lahakim et mishkan. Moshe desired to lift the mishkan, but he couldn't. That's why he uses the word kalot. It was an, it was an attempt. He wished to do it, but ultimately he didn't. But why did God make that miracle for him? Because he wanted and he desired it. And he says, Hatam Sofer. And that's why we call a bride a kala. Because what is a kala? She desires and anticipates to be with her husband, to be married. And therefore, in this pasuk, it says not kalat in the singular, but it says kalot. Two anticipations. Moshe was anticipating to build a mishkan. And who else anticipates? A bride. And that's why that she from the extra vav understood like a bride that's desirous to get married. She entered, B'nai Yisrael entered the Mishkan on that day. So therefore the plurality of the word kalot and the source of the word kala is what Hazal were able to, to understand. Okay, that, that's very nice. So there's a wedding in this week's parasha. They have a wedding. Most people don't know that. Mishkan was inaugurated. Kalot, the kalam, entering the chuppah. You think this is so easy? It's not easy at all. I don't know. They always told me when I was a kid in yeshiva, when was the marriage? When was the marriage of B'nai Yisrael to God? Har Sinai. I mean, they convinced us. Har Sinai is the day we married God. We married God that day. That's the marriage. And all the laws of marriage we learned from Har Sinai. I think I told you last week, we have flowers at our wedding because that flowers at Har Sinai. And uh, it says that God came to greet the people. And Har Sinai says, Hashem misinai ba. God came from Sinai. It doesn't say he came to Sinai. It says he came from Sinai. Hashem mis Sinai ba, meaning God was at Har Sinai. And when the people came to the mountain, God came from the mountain to greet the people. From here we have the custom at our weddings that the Hatan goes to greet the Kala. Ever see the wedding when the bride marches down? The Hatan walks. Where'd you get that from? That's not from some party planner or some, uh, you know, somebody that's, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know uh, marching arrangements. This is done because of Hasinai. Hashem Sinai Ba. God came down from the mountain to greet B'nai Sel. So from there we have a custom that the Hatan goes to greet the, the Kala. There's nothing to talk. So what are we going to do over here? What, 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 can anybody tell me when was the real wedding date? Was it Harsinai? Or was it, uh, was it the Mishkan? So to make it simple, this is based on all sources. Take my word. It's a Maharsha and Shabbat, etc. The plan was like this. Shavuot, when God came down originally to give us the Torah, that was phase one of the marriage. It's called Kiddushin. You ever go to a wedding? There's two phases. That was Kiddushin. You know when the wedding was supposed to be? 40 days later, when Moshe Rabbeinu came down with the tablets, that was supposed to be the wedding day. Sorry to tell you, ladies, you know what happened on that day? The bride was unfaithful. The bride was worshipping the golden calf. And the Hatan said, there's no wedding. 
called off the wedding. That's we call a broken engagement. It's the first broken engagement in history. It happened with God. B'nai Israel didn't work out. Moshe was the Shadchan. So Moshe Rabbeinu tried to, you know, he tried to patch it. You know, sometimes you can't patch it up. Sometimes it says it, that's not Nasib, it's not, uh, not in the cards. But Moshe Rabbeinu went up to patch it, it took him 80 days. And he convinced the Hatan to come back. So he came back on Yom Kippur. When he came back on Yom Kippur, it's Kiddushin again. Because everything was broken before that. Now it's starting again. So on Yom Kippur we had Kiddushin. When was the Nisu'in? The Nisu'in wasn't until we built the Mishkan, which was six months later. So therefore it's perfect. You're right. Matan Torah ultimately was supposed to be the... But it got cancelled because of the Ekel. It got reinstated on Yom Kippur when we got the second Luchot, but that's considered Kiddushin again. And we need to consummate. What is the consummation? Vayhi beyom kalot. And therefore, the Mishkan is the finality of what started at Har Sinai. Now I know the connection while we're reading it this week. I don't know if you ladies go to shul in the mornings. I know you pray. Well, then, you, then you must know this. If you pray, you have to know what I'm telling you. You know, every day of the year, after the Amidah, we make confession. Except on holidays. And except on happy days. Holidays, we don't say confession. Shabbat, we don't say confession. Now, even the day after holidays are called Isruhag. The day after a holiday, no confession. But Shavuot is the exception. There's no confessions for seven days after the holiday. Today we do not say confession in Shul. Tomorrow we will not. And the rabbis are wondering, what, 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 why did Shavuot get seven days? And the books bring down is because Shavuot is the marriage. Or at least the beginning of the marriage. And therefore, in every marriage you have seven days. Sheva Berachot. And therefore the seven days after Shavuot are the Sheva Berachot commemorating the marriage that started at Har Sinai. That didn't happen, but was reinstated on Yom Kippur. But God, I guess, wanted to keep Shavuot as the day. So we kept the original day, although that day... You know, it didn't work out so much retroactively, but once Kippur came, the Morel said, you know what? I'm going to mark it down on the anniversary, that the anniversary is Shavuot, because it was fixed at the end of the day. And then the Chuppah was finished when? On the day that the Mishkan was. Now, Parashat Naso will always come out this week. And therefore, since we're in the middle of the Sheva Berachot, this week, B'nai Yisrael is celebrating the marriage that we had, like a kala. So there's no better perasha than to read the inauguration when the Mishkan was inaugurated, the Pasuk Vahim B'yom Kalot Moshe. Is there a better week to read when we became the kala of God? We became the kala this week. So therefore, although in the Torah narrative, this perasha might not fit, but in the course of the calendrical year, in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the time span of the year, that it comes always after Shavuot, 
Well, Shavuot, we're brides now. Everybody's walking around celebrating. I used to have a custom. I don't know why I forgot it this year, but usually I wear a white tie this week, like a hatan. And I go to all the different graduations, and I speak all over. They say, oh, you, 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 you're going to have a wedding, or you're going, so yes, I have a hatan. The Shiva Berachot. I'm going to change my tie. I forgot. I got caught up this week in busy things, but that's the real custom to put on a tie. Let everybody know I'm making Shiva Berachot this week. And that's the reason why. So it comes out like this. All the items in this week's parasha have relevance. The beginning of the parasha is just to keep everybody at peace and keep everybody with shalom. And then the main part of the parasha is to remind everybody that although the marriage started off a little rocky and there was a broken engagement, but you have to know that ultimately it got back on track. And it got back on track. And in Shavuot, we commemorate the fact that ultimately we got the Torah. And that was the Kiddushim. And then Bore Olam brought us to the next level. He brought us to the Mishkan, and on that day, now we're married, which represents the, the closeness. Now, the lesson over here is that if you're married, there has to be faithfulness. And whatever vows that we made, so we have to, if we want God to keep his vows to us, we want the Hatan to be loyal, so we have to be loyal to Kadosh Baruch Hu. Therefore, there's no better week than to read the perasha of when we became the Kala of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, then the week that we are commemorating a national Shiva Berachot that will always come after the holiday of Shavuot. I take this uh, opportunity, being that this will be the last uh, class uh, before the summer, to again congratulate all our members for a wonderful year. We were able to reveal in your credit and zikhut a lot of the secrets of the Torah, but more important, it's only because the ladies in this class are very overcapable in understanding these Devrei Torah. Uh, I don't think this can be said to any group. Uh, if I had to, if they put me somewhere else and said give a ladies class, I probably would have to reassess the level that I like to give these classes on, and I probably would quit because I don't like to give classes on that other level. So again, to your credit, and I just pray that you have a good summer and healthy. And we'll keep you posted if we'll have any classes over the summer. Because Hashem uh, will send out uh, some information. Thank you.